0: Welcome to the Environmental Science Careers Podcast. I'm glad you're joining me today. My name is Julia. I'm an environmental scientist as you might have figured. I'm also a healthy living advocator and a world explorer. If you want to find out more about what it is I do, head over to my website udu.com. But for now, let's dive into today's episode. Today's interview features Mark McDill, a professor of forest management at the Department of Ecosystem Science and Management at Penn State University in the United States. Currently, his main focus lies more on an ecological perspective of forestry, but in the past he worked in many different fields. Thus, this conversation will give you really interesting insights into what is possible with a forestry degree, or even as a researcher in general. We discussed why teaching is his passion and what finally made him end up in the field of forestry. Because actually, he started out studying something completely different. We also touched on the future of forestry and why mathematical skills are extremely important, no matter in what field of environmental science you work in. Of course, I also picked his brain about a few tips for you guys, including networking and reviewing papers. Finally, we got also to talk about work and life balance, which can be quite challenging in the world of academia. One part of balance definitely includes a healthy lifestyle and fitness. Well, I could talk hours about this topic, so I couldn't resist to ask about it when I saw that we were wearing the same fitness watch. So, a question for you guys. Do you think that exercise helps with your daily routine at university or your job? I would definitely say so, but you will have to listen until the end of this episode to find out our conclusion about this. Overall, it was a great conversation touching on so many different topics, so I'm sure you will find at least one, if not many, things to take away from it. That being said, enjoy and let's get started. Welcome, Professor MacDill. Um, Thank you. We're sitting here at the Lisbon University, where I'm a student and you're a guest lecturer for three weeks. Originally, you're uh, teaching forest management at Penn State University in Pennsylvania, in the United States. And right now, you're teaching us uh, natural resource management. Um, to be more specific, linear programming. Um, we have the pleasure to be with you for three weeks. and. You agreed to be on my podcast, so thank you for that. And welcome. Thank you. Well, maybe to start off, um, I have like a little icebreaker question that I used to um, ask everybody. So um, if you would like ask your spouse, your best friend, your mother to describe you with three words, what do you think they would say?
1: Uh, They would say smart, opinionated, and... Maybe talks too much, although that's three words, but pretend it's one. (laughs) Right.
0: Um, And how how do you think these um, qualities, let's say, have helped you with your uh, professional career?
1: I think uh, most professors have to have those three qualities. Um, Part of what we do is we have to submit our work for peer review, and so... You have to have a lot of confidence to live with that process because we're expected to put what we do up for criticism, and we get it. <laughs> I don't. Well, I've only submitted one paper in my life that was accepted with almost no right. <laughs> criticism. <laughs> so, um, so you have to have a lot of confidence and be willing to stand up for what you believe. But you also have to be willing to listen to what others say and learn from that. Um, so I didn't use the word arrogant. I hope that one doesn't apply to me. I try to take criticism and listen to it and, and apply it if, uh, if I think it is well deserved.
0: Yeah, okay. <laughs> Makes sense. And did you always have a passion for teaching or did that develop during your career?
1: I like teaching uh, when the students want to learn Uh, so I do like to share what I know I like to see when students get it when the light bulb comes on Um, that's really cool Uh, so and I also feel like I know a lot and at some point I'm going to be gone I'm going to retire and then I'm going to die and so it's important to pass that information on to other people. I've spent a, in my whole career um, learning things. And so if I don't share that with people, then it's just lost when I'm gone. So um, I have to say there's two things I don't like about teaching. One is when students really don't care. They just want to know what do I have to do to pass this class, which is happens <laughs> Um, and the other thing I really don't like is grading writing, mm-hmm. even though I do it all the time because I believe that writing is a great way to learn. But for a professor, it's very uh, tedious yeah, it's going wordy, through writing yeah. <laughs> and editing, giving feedback. Um, so there are parts of teaching that I don't enjoy, but, um, but I do enjoy um, when students want to learn and when they're excited about the material. Um, so, And the idea of sort of sharing what I've worked so hard to learn over all these years with yeah. other people.
0: Can you share with us um, your how you started out in your career, what you studied and well, where?
1: <laughs> so I went to the University of Minnesota for my undergraduate degree. Um, my first major was theater. Okay. <laughs> because in high school, I was in all of the plays uh, because I think it was because I was good at memorizing lines, but when I got to college, I realized I had no talent for it. <laughs> Just
0: passion, maybe?
1: <laughs> well, I enjoyed doing yeah. it, but um, I realized there were other people who were way, way, way better at it than me, and I realized in a field like that, you're really only going to make a good mm-hmm. living if you're very, very good. And so I did that for one year. And
0: so In the states, you can like choose a major and then do other courses as well while doing your major. Yeah, you're you have a lot of flexibility. Like you choose one thing and then you'd go straight for it, and you don't really have a lot of flexibility.
1: Early in your in your college program, you have some flexibility. Uh, we have what we call general education, mm-hmm. where you have a lot of choices about what you can take, but you do need to at some point. Decide what you're doing and focus on Mm -hmm. those classes, or you're going to be in school for a long time. Yeah. Uh, So I went from theater then to journalism, and I decided I didn't really like journalism either. So why? Well, to be honest with you, it was just the other people. I didn't like the other students, Mm -hmm. and I didn't feel like I belonged there either. And in a way, I didn't feel like I belonged with the theater mm-hmm. crowd either, because I wasn't as out there as they were. Uh, so actually, after two years, I quit going to school, and uh, I decided there's no point in me continuing until I know what I want to do. And so I, my father, my parents lived in South Dakota in the Black Hills National Forest, so I went back there and got a job with the Forest Service I was just marking trees for, for timber harvest, okay. and I did that. I did it into the winter, but then I got laid off in the winter wintertime, uh, and I sold cancer insurance door-to-door <laughs> during the winter. Uh, so I did sales, <laughs> and then I went back to work for the Forest Service, and I worked for them again until the next winter. And after doing that for two long summers, more than just summer and fall, I decide, well, so forestry, it's kind of an interesting career, and I like being outside, and I care about natural resources in the forest. So. Did you know
0: about forestry before you did that job? Like, was it where you were that this kind of career exists?
1: Yeah, only vaguely. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for most people. Yeah, for me too. <laughs> Unless you know somebody who's a forester, chances are you don't even know that a career like that exists. Yes. So yeah, it was because I was, I was working, I was just a peon, uh, but I was working for foresters, and so I met a lot of foresters and talked to them about their careers and that sort of thing, and I thought, well, that's not such a bad life, I could do that. So then I went back in forestry, and I finished my undergraduate degree, and I did really well, and I worked for a professor, I got a job working for a professor, and um, he said, You should go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. So instead of going out and getting a job after I finished my bachelor's, I went straight to graduate school. And he helped me to get an assistantship. In the US, most of our graduate students have financial support. Mm-hmm. We call it an assistantship. So he used his connections, his friends, said, You know, I've got this great undergraduate student. You know, wouldn't you like to have him as a graduate student? So he helped me to find a position with at North Carolina State University. I went there and got my master's degree. And by that time, I realized I liked doing research. Mm-hmm. And I liked the more advanced courses that I was taking. I liked what I was learning. And so I decided to just keep going. And plus, I was working with professors. And I saw what their life was like. And I thought... That looks like a good life, so.
0: So your master's was like um, forest management?
1: Forest economics, actually. And my PhD was forest economics, and I got a dual degree in agricultural economics. Okay. So, and as part of my PhD, I went back and took a lot of undergraduate math classes because I realized that it's all math. Mm -hmm. And I realized that my math wasn't good enough. And so I got the equivalent of an undergraduate degree in mathematics while I was doing my Ph.D. And I, I didn't get any credit for those classes towards my Ph.D. I just audited the classes, but I could see that I needed to really strengthen my math yeah. skills.
0: Oh, yeah, in the kind of field, natural resource management. Important. <laughs> well, and
1: people don't think of it as no. being mathematical, but well, and not all of it is. But um, the management part is very mm. mathematical.
0: But compared to today, where we use like computers like all the time, was it the same back then? Just like with like less operative computers, but or still like a lot of things.
1: Well, that's a, that's an interesting question <laughs> because. My job that I had as an undergraduate working for the professor was taking his decks of cards. That was his program, was a deck of cards, and taking them down to an office where you'd submit it, and they would have a card reader that would read the deck of cards and send the program to a mainframe computer, Mm -hmm. and that would run the program. Then later, I would go down and pick up the output and take it back to the professor. And I would retype cards when he... So that was actually my job. And when I was a senior in my undergraduate program, that was when professors started getting PCs. Mm -hmm. Before that, professors didn't have their own computer. So really, my whole career has in many ways been taking advantage of the growth of computing power and using that to let us do things that were unimaginable when I started because the computing power just wasn't there. And we've always been pushing up against the limits of what computers can do with a lot of the models that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've run programs that literally we left them running for months <laughs> trying to get a solution. And
0: if you would do that today, how much time would you need to like take the same kind of Maybe a week mm-hmm. still. Okay. Um, Still it's
1: gotten faster, but, <laughs> but that really wasn't that long ago. That was maybe 15 years ago. So um, that I was really working on those very um, computer-intensive mm-hmm. problems. But we still have them. A, a lot of... Um, but I guess I've shifted into different kind of work now. Um, the funding for that kind of work, sort of dried up in 2008. So that's another thing about at least my career as a professor is that what I really like doing and what my expertise was in, it's like, it's always been a tough sell to get actual management agencies to use it. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that's published in the journals, but not a lot of it is actually being used by the management agencies. And part of it is that it's too complicated, and a lot of people just don't understand it. Um, so anyway, the in 2008 we had the financial crash, and the agency that was funding my work and actually using it said, you know, we can't afford our research budget anymore because they had budget cuts, and it was like either we lay some foresters off or we cut our our research budget. So they cut my budget, and so. That had been my main source of research funding up to that point. So I had to reinvent my, my whole um, research program. So I shifted. I actually tried a lot of different things to try to find something that would stick. I did some work in bioenergy. Mm-hmm. I did some work in climate change. Um, but what has stuck now, today, what I do mostly is actually ecology stuff. So we're looking at how, what it takes to get certain species to grow well. Uh, and some of the problems involve, number one, is over browsing by deer. Uh, number two is acid deposition, uh, which is changing the soils and making uh, certain plants not grow as well. So that's one of my big projects, and that involves actually being able to identify hundreds of species of not just trees but the little plants growing in the forest (laughs) Um, so that's one of my projects now another one of my projects now is using the same technology for that self-driving cars use but using it so a self-driving car builds a 3d model of the world around it and so that it can navigate through that and that same technology can be used by someone moving through a forest to build a 3d model of the forest in detail so we in 5 or 10 years we won't be foresters won't be going out putting diameter tapes around trees anymore they'll just be walking through or even maybe sending a drone oh. <laughs> through the forest and it will measure everything in detail yeah. and far faster far more cheaply and in far more detail than was ever possible before so so those are the things that I'm doing now, and none of it involves optimization too much. Um, so what I'm doing now involves more statistics. So even the ecology, it's a very complex statistical problem to analyze that data. And um, for, we have huge amounts of data that we get about the forest and figuring out how do we use that data to develop useful information about the forest. So these days it's really i have to i have to improve my statistical background but once again that math background is really helpful in understanding statistics
0: so sometimes it's really good to be proactive and maybe learn something you don't get credit for but for your personal like intelligence it would be well those foundations
1: those foundations and you know the basics the, we we call them the three r's the reading writing and arithmetic um no matter what you do if you get an advanced degree you have to read a lot you have to be able to write you know and they, i don't know if you know the phrase publish or perish no. if you have a phd you're expected to publish oh yeah which means you have to write uh, and not only that you have to write in order you have to my university doesn't give me money to do my research. They pay my salary. In fact, they don't even pay all my salary. They pay three quarters of my salary. And the other quarter, I have to pay with research grants. And so it's a way of giving me an incentive. Um, but So I have to write proposals and to convince people that I have a good idea. So they should give me literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so you have to write well to get Funding for your research projects and then you have to write reports and then you have to write research papers so you have to be you have to read a lot you have to be a good writer and You have to know math these days. It doesn't matter even the ecology that I'm doing the statistics are very sophisticated and and at the end of the day if you don't have a good solid math foundation Mm -hmm. um, It'll be too hard for you to understand and to apply correctly. So those basics, reading, writing, and arithmetic, still really matter.
0: Yeah, okay. And do you also work with, um, let's say, landowners or forests to like, consult them? Or
1: I've done some of that, um, but I'm really busy, and so when somebody calls me up, so mostly what I do is actually court cases as an expert witness. So like if there's timber theft, or if somebody hired a manager for their land, and they think the manager didn't do a good job of managing their land, then they might hire me to look at what they did if they're suing them for mismanagement or something like that. But because, I, um, because I'm busy, I ask a lot of money when they do that. And a lot of times when people call me and I tell them my rate, it's like thank you very much i'll find someone else but that's deliberate if they're if i'm going to do it it really has to be worth my time or or i just i'm too busy to do it but i also one of the things that i do as a service uh, to the state of pennsylvania is i calculate the property tax rates Mm -hmm. for all the forest landowners in a program which is most of them so it's sort of a payments for ecosystem services kind of thing so if you agree to keep your land in forest then you get a big break on your property taxes so I collect all the data and recalculate the numbers for the property taxes every year so what people pay in their property taxes on their forest land if they're in this program is based on numbers that I calculate um, actually I don't do it I hire graduate students or under even undergraduate students and I train them and they do most of the work in fact almost everything that I do I don't do the work I get the money I hire the people I'm a manager I train the people I manage the people I make sure that they get the job done I write the reports um, but I hire people to do that but anyway I have a big impact on Um, the private forest landowners of the state, and I get a lot of complaints from them. Mm -hmm. For a while, I got a lot of complaints. I was actually taken to court. They're saying that my methods were not right. Um, And uh, we won. Um, So the numbers that I calculate affect what people pay. And so it's real money. And... um, and it has to be something that's sound, because if they don't like it, they can take me to court. Other people have hired me to try to get their taxes lowered. Uh, and I've worked with them to lower their taxes. So there are ways within the system to lower their taxes. And it's not just saving people money. Um, it, if, if good forest management isn't profitable, people won't do good forest management. So the two are not helping people make more money growing trees. In my opinion, it is a good thing because it gives them incentive to do good management because they're able to make money uh, from doing that. If it's not profitable, then they'll do something that is profitable, which may not be good forest mm-hmm. management. But I have worked with the state forests, with the public forests. And basically, that's what I did until 2008 with them, as I developed a system for them to actually decide how much they should cut each year and what they should cut each year, what types of management practices they should do each year. And we developed linear programming models mm-hmm. for them. And um, actually, that was very difficult. Uh, the people, the foresters, didn't like it at first, It was something that the administration wanted, Mm -hmm. but they didn't like the idea that some mathematical model was telling them what to do.
0: So how would you explain it to them in an easy way to understand the benefits of it?
1: Well, so they were being pushed by the environmentalists to cut less, and they're being pushed by the industry to cut more. So they needed a rational, data-driven Basis for their decisions. They can't. It used to be that foresters could just go out and do what they did and nobody would question because they were the experts. But those days have been gone for about 50 years. And so they were getting pressure from both sides, one side to cut more and the other side to cut less. And I said, well, you know, this is a framework for making these decisions. If you have a better framework, then, you know, but they wanted everybody to just leave them alone and let them do their job. But that wasn't going to happen. So really, the administration uh, was saying, we're going to do this. And so it was pushed by the upper administration. And some of the Foresters supported it, but some didn't. And some were very vocal about being against it. Um, But the administration said, yes, we're going to do this. Um, after they started doing it and after they actually got through the process, most of them like it and they're very happy with it. And that's part of the reason why they stopped my funding, because I wanted to actually make the system better and they were happy with it just the way that it was. Um, But another thing that happened is a lot of the people who weren't happy were older and they retired. So the younger people were more open to a new way of doing things, and so part of what made change possible was just older people retiring. Mm-hmm.
0: I feel like that's often the case in such conflicts. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a. It's not all bad that people get old and die; otherwise, there would never be change. Progress, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Yep, progress, I right?
0: And how did you get in collaboration with uh, Lisbon University or with our professor, Professor Borch?
1: So after I finished my PhD, my first job was a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Minnesota. Uh, And so I was doing there, um, I was looking at whether the forest products industry was cutting too much on a statewide basis. So I got hired on a big project to do that. And, and Dr. Borges was there doing his PhD studies with the same professor who I was working for. So we got to know each other real well. And, and uh, we've been, well, for a long time, we would see each other at meetings. Um, and, then this, and then actually, I came here for a sabbatical. So after, after seven years, and you make tenure, and you get promoted to associate professor, then you can take a sabbatical. And so I said, I'm definitely, I need a break after seven years of struggling to get tenure. And so I was looking for a place to do a sabbatical. And I grew up actually overseas, so I wanted to go to a different country. And, you know, just to, the world is a big, interesting place. Why spend it all in one country? (laughs) So I was I was working with all of my colleagues in other countries, and um, it seemed like the best opportunity for me was to come to Lisbon. So I came to Lisbon for six months uh, in two thousand five for a six month sabbatical, and you know worked with Professor Borges more then. so that was the first time we actually did more work professionally since we'd done our when since I was a postdoc and he was a. PhD student, that was in like the early 1990s. So there was a period of almost 15 years where we kept in touch, but we didn't really collaborate. But then when I came for the um, for the sabbatical, then we developed some joint research projects, and we've been working together ever since. And then when the MedFloor program came up, then it was an opportunity for me to come back on a regular basis and and collaborate more. So. I've been doing it ever since, except last year my daughter had some medical problems, but almost every year I come for three weeks in the fall and, and, you know, I've probably published a third of my papers with Professor Borsch, so we have a very fruitful collaboration. And it's nice to come to Lisbon.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, it's a little bit rainy. (laughs) <laughs> During the season, usually, I guess, but I like it here, too. Um, nice. So, networking is obviously very important as a mm-hmm. professor or as a PhD student, master's student, whatever. Um, do you have maybe any tips for students who just start out or, like, don't really know in which direction you want to go, but...
1: Well, number one, go to professional meetings. So... You need to go to conferences. Of course, so my graduate students, I'll pay for them to go to conferences, but only when they have something to present. Mm -hmm. So they first have to get far enough along in their research project that then they have something to present at the conference. Part of the reason for that is that if you just go to the conference and you're just sort of hiding in the back of the room, nobody gets to know you. But if you stand up and you present, then everybody sees, oh, that's what you're doing, and then people will talk to you Afterwards, so when you don't know anybody, you know, it's too easy to just go and not meet anybody But when you have to present then people see you and then they'll approach you and talk to you about your research so all of my graduate students go to professional conferences and present their research um, and That's the number one way Mm -hmm. Another thing that I did a lot of when I was younger but I don't do so much anymore was I was very involved in the Society of American Foresters and I went to all of their professional meetings and I made a lot of contacts through doing that. So really professional meetings is the number one way to do that. These days I don't well at some point I decided, you know, I can't keep going to all these meetings because it I don't get work done. It's important You know so now I have the network I don't need to do it as much and going to too many meetings actually interferes with getting actual work done Um, but early in your career you need to go to as many meetings as you can that's where you meet people you need to put yourself out there and talk to people but again being able to present something makes it easier because then people see what you're doing and so it's nice if you can be early on the agenda, not the last person. Because right. <laughs> by the time people see you, then the meeting is over.
0: Everybody's tired once you go home. Right. So also, even if you're not interested in doing research or doing a PhD as a master student, you would still recommend to go to conferences to meet even professionals from the field? Or
1: Yeah, so the Society of American Foresters has professional conferences where they do have speakers but most of the people going there are not are not researchers they're professionals so and I don't know how how that works here um, but but yeah there are professional societies uh, where oftentimes the speakers again they'll give talks but they're not necessarily even researchers they might be An official who's talking about here's what's going on with this policy or something like that Um, so yeah you have to get there there are ways to develop professional networks at every level it takes time it takes some money Uh, hopefully ideally your employer pays for your cost of going because they want you to network too because that you learn from other people you find out what's going on Um, another way is just reading um, the professional journals and that sort of thing Um, but yeah that that networking pretty much the way that it happens is through is through um, those conferences another way you know if you're a researcher that people get to know you is by doing reviews so you know we all submit papers so When I submit a paper, typically it's reviewed by three people. So if I submit three papers a year, that means I should be reviewing nine to be doing my share. And at least the editors who are asking me to do those reviews, when they see my reviews, they find out, oh, this person either does a good job of reviewing or is not a good reviewer. So uh, I think people, It's sort of, it's not so visible because reviews are, in most cases, anonymous. But you're not anonymous to that editor. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I actually believe that that's one way that I've built my reputation is by doing really good reviews. Um, By good reviews, I mean fair. Mm -hmm. Uh, If something's bad, I say so, but I try to do it nicely. If something's good, you know it's good that, those are the easy ones the easy ones are the ones that are either very good or very bad but even anytime I criticize a paper I've been on the receiving end of that so I try to be nice about it I try to make sure that I make it really clear why I think what I'm saying so and so I think that I really do believe that I've developed Part of my process of developing my reputation within the field has been through my reviews. And I've been an editor, too, and so I've seen good reviews and bad reviews.
0: What kind of qualifications do you need to be a reviewer? Like, do you have to have a PhD or...? Not necessarily.
1: So, um, there are never enough people to do reviews. so the way I started was when I was a PhD student, my advisor would give me papers to review that, that he had gotten that he didn't have time to review. So he would recommend to the editor, well, I don't have time, but my graduate student can do it. And so I started out as a graduate student before I'd even published anything doing reviews. Um, so, and then, you know, as you build a reputation, then people just ask you. In fact, I get asked to do 30 or 40 reviews a year, so I'm very selective about when I say yes, um, now. But that's how you get started, typically. Um, I I do the same thing with my PhD students, sometimes with my master's students, if they're good. you know all of my master students are good but they need to be a very good master student if for me to say you know enough about this to evaluate this paper and to give it a good review so i will i will ask my graduate students do you want to review this and then if they say yes i'll let the editor know that i don't have time but my graduate student's good and i think that he or she will do a good job so that's how that's how you get started and once you sort of get in their database and again there never I've been on the other side trying to find reviewers mm-hmm. and typically you have to ask about ten people to get three people to say yes <laughs> so um, so once you sort of get into the system and that's how you should sort of get it well if you're submitting papers then automatically you get considered for reviews mm-hmm as well so once you start submitting papers to publish then. but so there are other ways of making connections um, besides just professional meetings and that's just one well again when you publish people learn your name Um, and I remember when I first went to a meeting and somebody to a professional meeting and somebody came up to me and said I read your paper (laughs) You know and I really liked it and I'm happy to now have a face to go with the name you know so publishing is part of the process in fact publishing ultimately is the most important way that we build that reputation once you have that reputation you go to a meeting and then people come to you you know mm-hmm. when I was first in my career and I go to meetings then Nobody knew who I was, and so hopefully I'm presenting a paper. People see that. So early in your career, you have to sort of put yourself out there. Once you have been in your career for a while, it gets a lot easier. People, hopefully, if you've done a good job, everybody knows who you are, and everybody knows who you are before you even come to the meeting because they read your papers and that sort of thing. So... So it it gets easier. But I do remember
0: <laughs>
1: when I was first getting started that it was awkward going to meetings and feeling like nobody knows who I am and I've gotta sort of go out there and
0: yeah, need some confidence, put know. myself
1: out. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, that's some very useful tips right there, definitely. Um, I'm I see you wearing a Fitbit. <laughs> <laughs> I <Yeah>. do too. <laughs> I guess as a professor, especially if you like focusing on computational stuff, programming, whatever, you're spending a lot of time in front of your computer. So exercise, fitness, balance with work is important. It
1: is really important. Um, So my first seven years as a professor, I literally worked like 70 hours a week. And after those seven years, I was aging rapidly and once i made tenure i decided i'm not going to work 70 hours a week anymore Uh, i i still work maybe 50 55 hours a week but not 70 Um, and i decided i have to start getting some exercise on a regular basis when i was young i was athletic i i played soccer i played basketball I swam, I played tennis, you know, but then as I got busy with school and graduate school and then you get married and have kids and you're just too busy, and that all gets squeezed out. Um, But after I made tenure, I made two big changes in my life. I said, I'm going to get enough sleep. (laughs) Because before that, there are a lot of times when I only got three or four hours of sleep a night. I said, from now on, I'm going to get enough sleep whenever I can. I mean, you still can't always do it. But, and I'm going to try to get one hour of good exercise three times a week. And so I swim. I ride my bike. Um, I used to run, but my knees got bad. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, well, first of all, if you want to be healthy, if, you want, you know, if you're not healthy, it's hard to enjoy your life. Um, If you want to live long, you need to take care of your body. But also, if you want your mind to remain sharp, you have to exercise. Um, All of that, you need to get blood to your head. So um, I do, actually. It's a struggle. It's not, I mean, it's easy to say. But, you know, there's always so many things, so many demands on your time. So uh, this is actually something really important. In... In my life, one of the things that I've learned to do is I'm, there's always something I'm not getting done. And I've learned to let that go.
0: That's very important. <laughs>
1: but, you know, you have to decide what things you're just not going to get done. But And one of those things can't be exercise or sleep. Uh, you have to protect that. Those need to be priorities. Um, but people ask me to do things all the time and you also have to learn to say no, but I'm not very good at that. And so, and my wife says, you always are very optimistic about what you can get done in a day. <laughs> and so I commit to way too many things. And so one of the things that I've learned is that there are a lot of times when I, when I have made a commitment to do something and it doesn't happen. Uh, and I've learned to just say, I'm sorry it didn't happen i just didn't have time i shouldn't have said yes that i would do that Um, so that happens a lot in my life and so because there's always pressure on my time it's really easy to let sleep go or it's really easy to let exercise go or even more importantly it's really easy to let your relationships go and those are the things that actually matter the most and learning that lesson it's easy for me to say it's a lot harder to put in practice when you've got all these pressures and you feel bad about oh i don't really want to tell this person i didn't get it done on time you know but you have to decide what's important to you
0: and as you said one hour a day or maybe not even every day but like three four times a week it will make your mind work better You'll and sleep better. Your work is going to be easier in some some way, I guess, because you can focus better.
1: Yeah, so my goal is 8,000 steps a day, not 10, <laughs> um, because I want something to be more realistic. And I don't even get 8,000 steps every day. Um, but when I don't get 8,000 steps one day, I make sure I get it the next. Uh, and and that's, that doesn't even count towards real exercise. Right. Um, But I ride my bike to work. It's about um, five kilometers, six kilometers to work. So it's a 25-minute bike ride. It's down a hill, up a hill. Uh, So I get exercise doing that. I get exercise mowing the grass. I count that. But I also, I have a weight machine in the basement and um, I go downstairs and do a workout. I have an elliptical uh, in the basement. So I'm lucky I can afford a big house and some nice workout equipment. And I try to go downstairs and do a good, solid workout like that at least once or twice a week. I used to swim. I used to run. I don't run anymore. I used to swim. And swimming is one of the things that sort of has gone out of my life because it's just too much time. You go, and you have to get your suit on, and you swim, and then you got to shower and all that. and So, to get in an hour of swimming was really almost two hours, you know. And so I just, I have a swimming pool that's just two blocks from where I work. (laughs) And it only costs $5 to go there and swim. Um, But I just don't do that anymore. So, but I do try other ways to make sure that, you know, and everything is a balancing act. But I'd much rather be this way than be bored. My life is never ever empty i well these days, especially with these machines, you know you can't Smart hardly guns. be bored. Yeah. you've got the biggest problem is pushing that away because that can be a time waster yeah um so you know keeping those time wasters out of your life is really important too i do facebook but mostly because it helps me keep in touch with my family and friends and that sort of thing uh, i try not to engage in arguments and that sort of thing mm-hmm. on facebook you know but mostly just here's what i'm doing and seeing what my relatives and friends are doing um, but it can easily that can start taking up way too much of your time and something everything you do everything you do no matter how valuable it is is squeezing something else out so you always have to you know decide what's one of the things as you get to be my age is you start realizing you've only got so much time uh and so you start to you hopefully you start thinking that you know time is really short time is the most valuable resource to waste so I really try... I mean, that doesn't... You need to relax, too. But That's not wasting time. time. No. Right. No. So time management is actually the most important thing in life. I agree. <laughs> time management, so you have time for your friends. So you have time for your health. So you have time to have a life. It's actually, going back to careers... The challenge of having a PhD is the expectations are high. And it's much more competitive. You're competing with other people who are well-educated and smart and working very hard. And so you want to be competitive in that world. And it's very easy to slip into a mode where you work really, really hard just to be competitive with everybody else. Um, And everything else sort of falls away. And that's not healthy.
0: Mm. I think on that note, that's a very nice conclusion and a very important tip, I agree. It makes life so much easier if you're able to set your priorities straight and then focus on whatever is important to you.
1: But it's easy to say. Oh, of course. It's another thing to do. do, It's a struggle (laughs) your whole life to try to be a little bit better at it.
0: But it's something you can learn also. Right,
1: but you have to make that... A focus. You have to keep that in the front of your mind all the time.
0: That's right. Thank you so much. I think it was a great conversation. I'm sure whoever is listening is gonna enjoy it as well.
1: Happy to do it.
0: And that's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to find out more about me and my career, or if you're interested in healthy living tips, study hacks, fitness, plant-based simple recipes or travel experiences, then head over to my website, youdoyou.com. The show notes for this episode, for previous and all future episodes, where linked to whatever is mentioned in the podcast can also be found there. If you enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to subscribe. It also would be really great if you could leave a review or share it on your social media platform of choice, because this will help the podcast to grow and I will be able to share this knowledge with even more people. Until next time.